Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. All right. It is officially summer season here in the United States. We got kids out of school. We're feeling a little bit of that fizzy summer heat. Why not take a trip back into American history and look at Daredevils with JSTOR Daily? Mm, okay. Daredevils. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out what Daredevils <laughs> have to do with summer. But yeah, go ahead. I mean... <laughs> People kind of act the fool during summer, don't they? All right. Like, okay. rules are a bit less relaxed. Okay, you know what? It was a bit of a reach. Nevertheless, <laughs> <laughs> according to the Oxford English Dictionary, the word daredevil first entered the English language in the late 18th century when it defined a person or action characterized by a reckless sense of daring. And seriously, you don't see the connection to summer vacation there? Okay, all? all right, okay, all right, whatever. I'll buy it. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> all right, I okay. take it back. And, you know. <laughs> now, if you are of a particular vintage, shall we say, you're probably thinking of someone like Evil Knievel, mm. who from the 1960s till about 1980s was most famous for doing ramp-to-ramp -ramp motorcycle jumps over all kinds of dangerous objects. And his consistent, even compulsive, thrill-seeking is a real thing in both entertainment and psychology textbooks. Author William Goldman describes work in social psychology about people who engage in active, quote, sensation-seeking, a trait defined by the need for varied novel and complex sensations and experiences and the willingness to take physical and social risks for the sake of such experience. I mean, come on, even if it's not a summer break connection, think of all the pranks that we're seeing on TikTok. Like this is part of human culture. I feel right? like I feel like you're very hurt by my <laughs> questioning the segue. <laughs> I think I think I got a little defensive. I'm not even sure why. I think it's because the older I get, the less of this like sensation seeking that I'm right. doing and I'm looking more for security and safety. But to that point, Knievel was only the latest in a long line of what we're calling thrill entertainers and events that go way back to some of the earliest fairs and circuses in young America. The first circuses put together by John Bill Ricketts in the late 18th century, they included high wire walkers, which are some of the oldest legacy thrill acts. And since entertainment, especially of the circus variety, always reflects its time, the thrill acts only got more thrilling from there. This is when we started to see aerialists, human flies, high divers, iron jaw acts, and eventually stunt bicyclists and human cannonballs. Hmm. One man named Charles Blondin became globally famous in the middle of the 19th century for gallantly walking on a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And the fame it accrued to him even led President Lincoln to invoke Blondin as a symbol. There's a Harper's political cartoon from 1864, which is embedded in the article that shows Lincoln in tights pushing a wheelbarrow across a tightrope with political foes on top of his shoulders. And the <laughs> caption says, Mr. Lincoln said recently that he was like Blondin on the tightrope with all that was valuable in America, the Union, in a barrow. <laughs> there was also the so-called Jersey Jumper, who was a mill worker named Sam Patch, 
He became blindingly famous between 1827 and 1829 for one unusual reason. He liked to jump off high waterfalls for paying crowds. <laughs> Sadly, we don't know a lot about Sam Patch. Even his biographer admitted the account was more of a, quote, series of stories than any real-life narrative. And this dude, he survived many jumps, including one from a tall wooden platform into the Niagara River below the famous falls. Sadly, he did pass away in 1829 at the age of 30 in an attempt to jump the Genesee Falls in Rochester, New York, which he had actually successfully jumped before, but he didn't feel it had drawn enough crowds or revenue, so he was going to give it another go. Jumpers mm. usually tried to land feet first to minimize risk and injury, and they noted on this particular run, Patch hit the water unevenly. Accounts suggest he may have been drunk. Mm. But... It wasn't all just bros. We had one Annie Edson Taylor, who was a 62-year-old school teacher, by the way. I guess they've just never really paid well being a school teacher, even all the way back. Oh, <laughs> back this was her summer nope. gig. <laughs> anyway, so Annie Edson Taylor, she decided she would earn herself fame and hopefully fortune by going over to Niagara Falls in a barrel bolstered by pillows on the inside. She went over the Horseshoe Falls at 4.23 p.m. on October 24th, 1901, and she emerged wobbly but all right with a cut on her head and a new title to her name, the first human being to survive a trip over Niagara Falls. And wow. she's still only one of 16 to do so. How many people have attempted? With, you know, that stat wasn't included in here. I don't know. <laughs> that number's they kind did, of a did. bummer, they figure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you may want to go to insurance company actuary tables for that information. <laughs> but sadly, none of the amateur thrill seekers got the fame or fortune for which they had hoped. Patch's career ended abruptly that day in Rochester when he was only 30. And Though Taylor made hay for a short while, making appearances, and she even sold a biographical pamphlet, Eventually, the hype faded, right? And apparently some jerk stole her barrel, though maybe that was <laughs> payback for something. They just add that as a little parenthetical aside. But that commitment to thrilling the public purely for the sake of exhilaration, that was at the time an emerging 19th century synergy of individual agency that has certainly mutated to all kinds of things that we're seeing today on social media. Right. So we didn't have uh, medieval daredevils. Oh, I'm sure we did. Yeah. Right, I'm sure we, we did. We just didn't too. use the same I mean, maybe they word. didn't have TikTok. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. They're in the town they square. They the same kind of publication. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. that's kind of what the dragon slayers were, right? I like how you're talking about dragons like they're real. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, no. <laughs> it was speculative, right? Right. But, I mean, that's part of what's so crazy about it. You're like... A dragon might be out there somewhere. I'm going to go kill it for you, princess or king or, or yeah, whatever. All the clout and none of the danger. Come on. Yeah. Like. Okay, next link. <laughs> next link. This article comes to us from technologyreview.com, and it's titled, A Brain Implant Changed Her Life, Then It Was Removed Against Her Will. Ooh. Whoa, that's yeah. rude as hell. So sticking an electrode inside a person's brain can do more than treat a disease. Take the case of Rita Leggett, an Australian woman whose experimental brain implant changed her sense of agency and self. 
she told researchers that she became one with her device. She was devastated when two years later, she was told she had to remove the implant because the company that made it had gone bust. Oh, no. Yeah. The removal of this implant and others like it might represent a breach of human rights, ethicists say in a paper published earlier this month. The issue will only become more pressing as the brain implant market grows in the coming years and more people receive devices like Leggett's. Ethicist Marcelo Iensa at the Technical University of Munich, a co-author of the paper, says there might be some forms of human rights violations that we haven't yet understood. The company was responsible for the creation of a new person. As soon as the device was explanted, that person was terminated. Wow. Leggett received her device during a clinical trial for a brain implant designed to help people with epilepsy. She was diagnosed with severe chronic epilepsy when she was just three years old and routinely had violent seizures. The unpredictable nature of the episodes meant that she struggled to live a normal life. She couldn't go to the supermarket by herself, and she was barely going out of the house. It was devastating, he said. Leggett was recruited for the clinical trial when she was 49 years old. Trial volunteers had four electrodes implanted to monitor their brain activity. Recordings were sent to a device that trained an algorithm to recognize patterns preceding a seizure. A handheld device would signal how likely a seizure was to occur in the coming minutes or hours. A red light indicated an imminent seizure, while a blue light meant a seizure was very unlikely. While trial participants enjoyed varying degrees of success, the device worked brilliantly for Leggett. With the advance warning from the device, she could take medication that prevented the seizures from occurring. Oh. I feel like I could do anything. I could drive. I could see people. I was more capable of making good decisions. I mean, it basically, like, gave her control over a disability. Well, and not only (laughs) that, I know a little bit about epilepsy. If she was allowed to drive, that means she was seizure-free for six months. So they they genuinely stopped the seizures because she was able to take the emergency meds, apparently. Wow. Yeah, that's that's heartbreaking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She also felt that she became a new person as the device emerged with her. She said, we had been surgically introduced and bonded instantly. With the help of science and technicians, we became one. Gilbert and Iensa described the relationship as a symbiotic one in which two entities benefit from each other. In this case, the woman benefited from the algorithm that helped predict her seizures. The algorithm, in turn, used recordings of the woman's brain activity to become more accurate. I mean, the fact that she's using things like we and considering it an entity, there is personhood being ascribed to the, not just the device, but the algorithm in particular. It is a learning model, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It has a lot of implications for where we're going in the future, too. You know, just on an aside, like Neuralink, mm-hmm. for example, just got approved FDA. to conduct human mm-hmm. trials. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That and uh, both of my stories this week are about brain implants. Oh, wow. All right. Oh, boy. Nice. <laughs> Always got a theme then. <laughs> we have a theme. Yeah. But it wasn't to last. In 2013, NeuroVista, the company that made the device, essentially ran out of money. The trial participants were advised to have their implants removed. Leggett and her husband tried to negotiate with the company. They're asking to remortgage their house. She wanted to buy it. Wow. In the end, she was the last person in the trial to have the implant removed, very much against her will. Years later, she still cries when she talks about the removal of the device, says Gilbert. It's a form of trauma. Ian Burkhart, who received an experimental brain implant to restore movement to his hands following a spinal cord injury, has also experienced feelings of loss. When I signed up, I knew the device would be explanted at the end of the trial, says Burkhart, who had his device removed in 2021. When I first had my spinal cord injury, everyone said, you're never going to be able to move anything from your shoulders down again. 
I was able to restore that function and then lose it once again. Yeah. That was really tough. Oh, 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 no. Burkhardt's case is different from Leggett's. He was only able to use his device in a lab setting, which he said helped him compartmentalize its benefits. Mm. And while the team that implanted his device also struggled with funding, it was an infection that eventually led to its removal. Hmm. But his implant did change his life, and losing it was challenging. This removal could be seen as a violation of human rights, Jensa says. The EU Charter of Fundamental Rights incorporates a right to mental integrity. Most legal systems seem to see it as a right to access mental health care rather than specific protections against harm. But Ianka says that could change. Rights are not static entities. He is among the ethicists and legal scholars investigating the importance of neuro-rights, the subset of human rights concerned with the protection of the human brain and mind. Nita Farahani, a legal scholar and ethicist at Duke University in North Carolina, who has written a book about neuro-rights, says, a patient should not have to undergo forcible explantation of a device. Yeah, it's like a lobotomy, right? Or if you got a hip replacement two years later, all of a sudden they're like, yeah, we're going to take that out. Yeah. And not replace it with anything yeah. else? What? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is like these are not necessarily FDA approved items yet. So uh, it's it. and, okay. and with the company going bankrupt, it sounds like, yeah. you know, she was a trying to buy it. A liability issue. Yeah, there's a liability. And also like that's their property. It's money she mm-hmm. didn't pay to have it put in. So they want it back so they can sell it, I guess, or, you know, hand it to somebody My guess else is to it's more of research. a liability thing, yeah. because if they're no longer in business, something bad happens with it. Whose fault does it become? And right. it's plausible that with newer tech and situations, it could fall back on them. Yeah. Well, right. and the other thing that makes me really sad, but it's like I have to acknowledge is if you do try to clamp down on this and be like, no, once you put it in them, it belongs to them and whatever. All you're really going to do is stop human trials. Like you're going to yeah. prevent people from trying to make these things because they're like, well, we can't afford yeah. the risk. Of- or they become so prohibitively expensive. Right. 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 They only be um, available to a certain which, of course, is how I think they probably is. already are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But you but still like you feel like there could be a way where she could sign a waiver. She could, like she said, mortgage her house to buy the equipment, sign away her rights of like any liability. I feel like there could have been a solution in her case. Yeah. And this was way back in 2013 or so Mm. when uh, this was very new technology. And I imagine that it was kind of a different culture. You know, now we're starting to move towards this kind of biohacking open source ethos. Mm. And I think some biotech companies are also beginning to get on that bandwagon as well. I just can't understand how the business went under when they had such a clear success case. (laughs) Like the tech worked beyond their expectations, right? It worked beyond their expectations for Leggett, but not as clearly for everybody else. Mm. And the thing is that all of these companies are extremely speculative. They, The way mm-hmm. biotech tends to work is that they raise a bunch of money, and then they will work for years and be at the bleeding edge of their debt. And if they don't have an instant success, they basically get shuttered immediately. Well, that sounds like a healthy environment, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the funding model for biotech is very messed up. I mean, it's a lot like uh, modern tech companies, which are also mm-hmm. the shining examples of corporate and monetary fiscal health. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. Well, brain implants. This is from The Guardian. Scientists discover brain signals from chronic pain. (gasps) Discovery of an objective biomarker raises hopes for new treatments for people living with (gasps) intractable pain. Turn it off. Turn it off. Turn it off. Full disclosure, I've been a chronic pain sufferer since my first memory. My first memory is a migraine. Wow. Four or five 
But brain signals that show just how much pain a person is feeling have been discovered, which is a great new step towards providing different treatments for people with obviously debilitating chronic pain. Since this article is from The Guardian, the numbers they provide for chronic pain sufferers, it's all from England, Mm. right? So it'll be 28 million or 44% of the population in the UK experience chronic pain. Wow. And that means for three months, despite medication or treatment. And I'm going to assume those numbers are similar, if not higher in the US, given Mm. our current opioid epidemic. Mm. Yeah. So the causes of pain they studied ranged from arthritis, cancer, back problems, diabetes, stroke, but no medical treatment works well for all the conditions, prompting experts to rethink how health services handle patients with chronic pain. I also had to look up what they meant by health services because I'm an American. Right. I've never heard of such things <laughs> What are you before. talking about? What, right. what are these health services, services you speak uh, of? <laughs> and this is where I say thank you to the volunteers of the research, the real heroes, because the researchers surgically implanted electrodes into four patients with intractable chronic pain. The devices allowed the patients to record activity in two brain regions, the anterior cingulate cortex, or ACC, and the orbitofrontal cortex, or OFC, at the press of a button. So all they needed to do is anytime they had pain, they'd mash the button. And several times a day, the volunteers were asked to complete short surveys on the strength and type of pain they were experiencing and then record the snapshots of their brain activity. Now that the researchers had the survey responses and the brain recordings, the algorithm could be trained to predict a person's pain based on the electrical signals in their OFC. Oh, it sounds a lot like the implant that was forcibly... Oh, God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And separate work by the team found that very different brain activity accompanied acute or short-term pain, such as produced by a hot object touching the skin. Mm. The finding may explain, at least in part, why routine painkillers are less effective for chronic pain than the short stabbing pain of like a stubbed toe or post-surgery. And again, the findings have an immediate impact on clinical trials for the procedure called deep brain stimulation, which sends electrical pulses into the brain to disrupt problematic signals. However, it does involve surgery. Yeah, I mean, I assume they have to cut into your skull because these aren't just like scalp (laughs) implants. These are brain implants. I mean, if you're living with Mm. horrible chronic pain, I can see why you would volunteer, but... Right. And now that I know I won't own it. Oh, yeah. That's a real big bummer. (laughs) (laughs) All right. This is my editorial. I've got a few issues with the findings of a biomarker for pain. I can see the inevitability of using this to deny that somebody is having pain. Yep. Yeah. But honestly, is that that different than what we got now? I mean, (laughs) honestly, how many people have been told you're not really in pain? You're just like psychosomatic or whatever. Like, I don't know. It doesn't seem that much worse. Well, and even we got to be careful there, too, because that's my anecdotal story is psychosomatic pain is still pain. Mm -hmm. still pain. Very real. Right. For me, again, it started with migraines when I was a kid. But then I had a pinched nerve in my neck for 25 years that I was unaware of. Wow. I just thought everybody's spine burned and arms got numb. (laughs) Plus, I was a poor musician with no insurance in America. So it's just like, all right, just burning neck is what we got. But thanks to my wonderful wife, I was able to finally have spine surgery. But my brain now had 25 years or more of constant pain. So my brain said, wait, what? Mm. No pain? I don't know what this is. And it created pain out of nothing. Wow. So long story short, they almost cut out my pancreas. What? (laughs) Okay. Uh (laughs) If it wasn't for a doctor I saw who actually sat down and talked with me for three hours kind of thing Mm -hmm. and saw that I actually had a feedback loop and got me set up at the Mayo Clinic. And the Mayo Clinic then confirmed that I was suffering from what they call nosoplastic pain Mm. and only heavy doses of a nerve blocker and antidepressant. 
actually was what was able to kill it. Well, I, I am glad there is a solution-ish. And, you know, you get mm-hmm. validation. That's something that can't be understood. Oh, that validation right. is huge because yeah. what right. happens, especially when you have anything wrong with your body, it gets really easy to continue gaslighting yourself. <laughs> until yeah, like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's promising. Yeah. Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, I swear people are going to think we planned this, but we did not. Uh, this next one is about a frankly amazing breakthrough directly from Stanford University called Researchers Treat Depression by Reversing Brain Signals Traveling the Wrong Way. <gasps> oh, yeah. Wow. It's, and at its core, this is a study about transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, which we haven't talked about yet today, but in which powerful magnetic pulses are applied to the scalp in specific ways that have been shown to dramatically improve symptoms of depression in patients who have not responded to other treatments. Mm-hmm. So we had a fair amount of evidence that it worked, but what we didn't really know is why it works. So the researchers at Stanford combined the treatment with another cool technology, the functional MRI, to look at patients' brains immediately before and after TMS to see what changed. They recruited 33 patients who had been diagnosed with treatment-resistant major depressive disorder, and out of those, 23 of them received the TMS and 10 received a sham treatment that mimicked TMS but without any magnetic stimulation. Then they compared both of those groups to 85 healthy controls without depression. And even though this rarely happens in science, especially science involving the brain, there was indeed one really clear change. In a normal brain, the anterior insula, which is a region that observes and acknowledges bodily sensations, will then send signals about those sensations to our old friend, the anterior cingulate cortex, which governs emotions. So first our body senses something, and then the brain decides how to feel about it. But in 75% of the participants with depression, the flow was reversed. The Ah. anterior cingulate cortex sent its emotional signals to the anterior insula, basically saying, I'm sad, so make sure you already know that when you observe the world. (laughs) So Hmm. rude! Yeah, the more severe the depression, the higher the proportion of signals that traveled the wrong way. And when those depressed patients were treated with TMS, the flow of neural activity shifted to the normal direction within a week, which also coincided with a significant improvement in their depression. And the really cool thing about this is, like the other stuff we were talking about, it's not just a validation of TMS, it's a legitimate biomarker for depression that they can now look for even when a person is not receiving any treatment at all. And then, of course, if you're one of the 75% of cases who have this particular type of depression, you can then be even more confident that TMS is going to work for you. Hmm. And most critically of all, in my opinion, you can prove without a doubt to your insurance that you have it and that you need the treatment. (laughs) Yes. So unfortunately, this one does not involve brain implants. It's TMS, which I know some people who have had. It's not invasive at all. It's a little bit uncomfortable when it's happening. But then the results, from what they say, you're talking months and months of absolute freedom. It's been very, That's very effective. remarkable. I've seen some videos of people getting it. It kind of looks like one of those old hair dryers that you would sit in. Yeah, the, yeah. Mm-hmm, they still mm-hmm, have but those, then, but yeah. <laughs> oh, they do. Okay, I didn't. I have. Oh, you mean like Professor X's psychic cap? Yep. And then when they run the magnetism, sometimes it's so strong that their face will twitch a little mm-hmm. bit. But but not enough to where they were upset about it. I didn't see anybody go, oh, I can't take that. Mm-hmm. It was more of a kind of a laughing it off a little Involuntary bit. Involuntary response. Mm-hmm. How often do they need to kind of re-up on this? Just I think it depends on the person. From the, the people that I know, they're kind of like every three to six months. They also wow. talk about how like initially it's like once every three or four weeks. Because even in this one, 
This is like multiple sessions. I think they did like 10 sessions over 20 days. Something like that was the initial. Now you've had TMS. Now we wait and see how long it lasts. Yeah. So there, do, there does seem to be a lot of variability. Wow. Uh, yeah, but it's still better than brain implants yeah. that have to be taken out because the company <laughs> right. went out they, of business. They can't yeah. take the magnetism back. It's in there. <laughs> it's in there. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right, we've already had a preview, but from Gizmodo, a Scottish woman in her 70s has lived a life without pain and fear. Now, new research is pinpointing unique mutations in her DNA. Does she call everybody bub? (laughs) What? (laughs) That's a Wolverine reference. That was a deep cut Wolverine (laughs) reference. I'm out, man. I'm not hip anymore. Yes, it was. I don't know that that's hip. That doesn't put you in the hip category. No, you got it. But this lady, holy cow. And, you know, the fact that it is kind of a, a mutant genetic, like we've been talking a lot about, you know, tech, whether it's implants, Magneto, <clears throat> sorry. Yeah. But this is a legit <laughs> DNA mutation, which is another tech, but super exciting. So we've got some new research from a team in the UK. They dove deep into the genetic makeup of one Joe Cameron a woman in Scotland with a rare mutation that leaves her practically incapable of experiencing both physical and emotional pain, which, what a superpower. Mm. Among other things, the team found that her mutation seems to turn on and off a variety of other genes, including those linked to wound healing and (laughs) mood. They detailed Cameron's story in 2019, um, researchers at University College London did, although they had first started studying her in 2013. And at the age of 66, the woman had undergone hand surgery, but needed no post-op anesthesia afterward. Hmm. A year earlier, she was diagnosed with severe joint degeneration in her hip, but she had none of the expected pain as a result. And in fact, throughout her life, she also reportedly felt little anxiety, little fear, and she seemed to heal especially quickly from cuts and bruises. So when the researchers studied her extensively, they discovered two genetic mutations that appeared to explain her resilience, both connected to a pain-related enzyme known as fatty acid amide hydrolase, or FAAH, which is F-A-A-H, and it's, <laughs> but it gets better. So one was a deletion in a pseudogene, which is a region of DNA that resembles a gene but doesn't code for a protein. Hmm. And the team would go on to name that one FAAH-OUT. That's oh, literally what they called it. Yeah, it's hyphenated right. and everything. Yep. <laughs> and the other was in a gene nearby to the one that actually regulates FA. So other studies have found that FA plays an important role in controlling our sensation of pain by breaking down a neurotransmitter that binds to our cannabinoid receptors. Studies mm-hmm. of mice bred without the FA gene have shown that they experience less pain, for instance, but the woman's unique condition and the mutations that caused it indicated that there are other ways that pain sensitivity can be influenced by our genetics. So now we've got a study published Tuesday in the journal Brain. The same UCL team is closer to understanding the underlying mechanisms behind the woman's mutant powers. And Gizmodo called them mutant powers. That was not editorializing on my part. (laughs) So the researchers used a variety of methods, including CRISPR, And as expected, they found evidence that FA out regulates the expression of FA itself. So it seems to directly reduce levels of the enzyme. But they also found that the mutation appears to turn off and on 
hundreds of other genes. And some of these genes influence how fast we heal from wounds, some affect our mood, or even just levels of the body's natural opioids. Hello, chronic feedback loop pain, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. The findings are also the latest to show that so-called junk DNA really needs a makeover because it ain't so junky after all. So yeah, we do need to have these findings validated by others. This is super, super new. And listen, a pain-free life sounds really attractive, but it does have some struggles because people with conditions like these have to be especially mindful to avoid ignoring or missing serious injuries. But emotionally too, (laughs) I mean, how we learn is through pain. Yeah, it sounds like like she's a little bit of a sociopath if she's never feeling sadness or, you know. I mean, not feeling anxiety is great, but you're absolutely correct. Anxiety and stress can teach us very important lessons. And to fail to learn those lessons makes you a little bit dangerous. But we have tried some pain treatments based on affecting FA. So far, none of them have been really great. But the research suggests that there are a lot of these new avenues to try. And even just sort of the ancillary junk DNA, not so junky. <laughs> it's all rather interconnected, which I can't believe we have to continue reminding people at this point. The human body is kind of a marvel, right? Mm-hmm. Well, it looks like old ladies are teaching us a lot today. They can go over Niagara <laughs> Falls. They can be sociopaths. They can listen. Listen, they've had a lot to teach implants. us all along the way. Yeah, yeah. But are we listening? Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. Next link. Next link. This one's from newatlas.com. It's titled Edible CBD Coating Keeps Fruit Fresher for Longer. Yay! Yeah, All right. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, sounds pretty nice. Yeah, it, it may does. be delicious and healthy, but fruit is frustratingly fickle too, often going bad quickly in the fridge. But now researchers in Thailand have developed an invisible edible coating made with cannabidiol or CBD that can preserve fruit for much longer. Researchers have investigated edible coatings that give fruit and other spoilable foods a longer shelf life without affecting their nutritional value or taste using materials made from spider silk, shrimp shells, eggs, pectin, or milk proteins, and now scientists have added CBD to the list. CBD is a non-hallucinogenic compound in cannabis, and it's increasingly finding use in treating anxiety, epilepsy, pain, and other problems. The team combined CBD with biodegradable polymers already used in drug delivery to make nanoparticles measuring 400 nanometers wide. These were then mixed with water and a food additive called sodium alginate, and next the researchers dipped strawberries into the resulting solution followed by a second bath in ascorbic acid and calcium chloride, which turned the coating into a gel. To test the coating's preservation abilities, the team placed treated and untreated strawberries into open plastic containers and kept them at fridge temperature for several weeks. And sure enough, the CBD-treated berries decayed far less over 15 days than the naked ones, keeping their color for longer. This new coating could be useful in reducing food waste and could be applied to other fruit as well as different types of food prone to spoilage. Or potentially, we could just up the dosage a little bit and get very relaxing fruit. I yeah, mean, honestly, sounds like a best of both worlds there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. for sure. <laughs> Anyways, really short one. There is a picture, but it's literally just a strawberry that is less decayed and one that is moldy. <laughs> so. <laughs> it's not like smoking a joint next to the other strawberry or anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they put a pair of sunglasses on it. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, I also have a short one to kind of finish this up. So this is from MIT Technology Review. A soft e-skin mimics the way human skin can sense things. 
Oh. A soft electronic skin could allow people with prosthetics to sense pressure and temperature, helping them to more easily interact with their surroundings. Huh. It's described as looking like a Band-Aid that mm. sticks to surfaces. However, unlike a Band-Aid, it contains sensors to measure temperature and pressure. The sensors send electrical signals to an electrode implanted in the brain. Because the electrical signals vary in frequency, the brain can tell the difference between sensations like a softer touch or a firm handshake, hot or cold, etc. So the team at Stanford University implanted soft e-skin electrodes into the brains of rats and recorded the electrical signals from the animal's motor cortex. Ooh. That's the region of the brain responsible for carrying out voluntary movement. The animals twitched their legs in response to the different levels of pressure recorded by the skin. They changed up the strength of stimulation frequency and saw a measured response that demonstrated the e-skin was able to detect different levels of pressure. Obviously, this could lead to better prosthetics. And this is in the article's words here. Could, <laughs> quote, help create robots that can feel human-like sensations. Boy, you know now, exactly was, where they're going with this. Come on. <laughs> their dream is to make a whole hand that has multiple sensors that can sense pressure, strain, temperature, and vibration. One of the main reasons people stop wearing prosthetics is that lack of sensory feedback, mm -hmm. which can understandably leave the users feeling frustrated. Yeah. And previous e-skins used soft sensors to sense touch, but they were forced to rely on rigid external components to convert those electrical signals, which prevented people from moving naturally, right? But because this new e-skin is thin, soft, and uses little power, it's an exciting prospect for people working in the field of prosthetics and robotics. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm still thinking of the industry that is absolutely going to fund this, the porn industry. They're absolutely oh, yeah. going to uh -huh. fund this until it is an absolute absolutely. reality. Yeah, it's the one thing I've said, if, if looking for new tech, I mean, let's be honest, the Internet is as fast as it is because of porn. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. and that's why VHS <laughs> was dominant. It's my every it's the yep. history of yep. every technical advance <laughs> was did the porn industry agree with it or not? And if they did, that tech got to live. So I'm I'm very confident about e-skin, less confident about uh, <laughs> epilepsy implants. Exactly. <laughs> oh, human nature. All right. <laughs> right. All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include the laws that took down mobsters are being turned against big oil. A real life Little Mermaid would be ridiculously hairy, says science and impressively vibrant moldscapes. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.